Is God good all the time? Now, we, in our head, we're going to have to say yes. Theologically, we'd have to say yes. But do we feel that way? Do we believe that all of the time? Because goodness, uh, you know, as, as we've been talking in this little series here, goodness is one of God's attributes. He doesn't have to prove himself to be good because he is good all the time. Who he is and what he does. Uh, if you've ever studied the life of Corey Ten Boom, spent uh, years in a German concentration camp before she died. And she said this, Often I have heard people say how good God is, and we prayed that it would not rain for our church picnic. And look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather, but God was also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. So God is good when we get that rock star parking lot at Target, right up front, we all like that, but God is also good when you've got to park, park five blocks away to get to wherever you're going. So here's where we are in our series as we're talking about who God is and who, uh, who we think he is and, and what we need to believe about God. Because as we've been discussing, behind every sin, behind every negative emotion, behind every traumatic uh, uh, event, or, or I shouldn't say event, but, but emotions and attitudes and things that we do, All that negative junk that's in our lives, behind every part of that is some lie we're believing about God. Something that we know to be true, theologically or in our heads, about who God is, but in our hearts we're not believing it. The difference between those two things is the process of sanctification, by the way. The closer we become to living out what we believe to be true about God, the more sanctified and the more we will look like his son, Jesus Christ. We call this, this part of our Gospel 101 series, the four G's of God. We've talked about God being great. God being great. And so I don't have to be in control. Last week we talked about how God is glorious. And so we don't have to fear other people. We don't have to crave their acceptance or, or fear their rejection. Next week we're going to talk about how God is gracious. And so we don't have to perform. But this week we're going to talk about how God is good. We've been singing that. Rush and the guys led us in that song this morning. You sang God is good. And I pray you sang it from your heart. So God is good so that we don't have to look elsewhere for what satisfies. We don't have to look elsewhere for our satisfaction. It's the topic of this morning's message. If you have your Bibles, turn with me please to John chapter 4. If you need a Bible, they'll be in the seat either behind you or in front of you. So we're going to go through John chapter 4, quite a bit of scripture this morning. It is not going to be on the board, I'm sorry because there's so much of it, but uh, please pull out a Bible if you don't have one, and let's follow along. This is the story, maybe a famous story, maybe you've heard it before, about the woman at the well. One of the first things that Jesus does when he is encountering people in his ministry is he runs into this woman and he has a discussion with her. We're going to talk about that this morning, what that means as far as God being good. So let's start reading in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, so so, uh, just so you know, uh, Judea is at the south, southern end of the Holy Land, if you will, and, and the Sea of Galilee is at the kind of the northern end, and so he's got to go from the south to the north. 
And so he's going straight through the middle of the section of the country called Samaria. And so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. That's important. Need to see that Jacob's well was there is the central place that this story is going to happen. You see, Jesus' popularity is attracting official hostility. The religious folk of the land don't like Jesus' message. They don't like Jesus. And his healings and his miracles and his message of the gospel is scaring a lot of the religious folk of the day. The Pharisees who ruled over the religious folk in, in, uh, in Israel at the time. So he's going to withdraw to Galilee. You know, it's amazing. There's two or three times when the folks are after, the Pharisees are starting to get after him uh, in the gospels. And Jesus decides, you know, it's just not the right time for me to be killed right now. And so I'm going to leave and go somewhere else. And so he goes through this part of the country called Samaria. Samaria is known for the Samarians who were kind of like half-breeds of the Jewish people when the Assyrians, uh, several hundred years before, had come in and conquered that country. They had put a lot of their folks in there, and so they had kind of intermarried and interbred. And so Samarians were looked at as half-breeds, not fully Jewish. They were looked down upon by the true Jewish people of the day. Second thing to remember is that this is an arid country. Wells are a big deal. If you don't have water in that part of the world, well, in any part of the world, but especially in a very arid, dry part of the world, if you don't have water, what happens to you? You die. And you die pretty quickly. Water is a big deal. Jacob's well is a big deal. Water represents life. Uh, You know, we don't really get that as much, I think, as, as they would, living in the country, living in that part of the world. So that's kind of where we are to set the story up. And Jacob's well was there. So, so Jesus, back in verse 6, Jesus, being wearied from his journey, check that one, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It would be about noon. So it's high noon. It's hot outside. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. So it says three things here that we need to point out. Because if you don't get this part of the story, you're not going to get where Jesus is going to take the woman in just a little bit. So it says here that Jesus is wearied. He's thirsty. Give me a drink. And his disciples went into town to buy food. So what are they? They're hungry. And so many times we think about Jesus, the God-man, doing miracles and doing miracle things. And yes, that's true. But you know what else Jesus was? He was a regular man. He knew suffering. He knew what it meant to be tired. He knew what it meant to be hungry. He knew what it meant to be thirsty. He had physical needs. Don't miss that in this story. I think it's pretty clear the author wants us to understand that there are physical needs that Jesus is discussing at the moment. He needs rest because he's weary. He needs water because he's thirsty. And he needs food. The disciples went to get it because they were hungry. Physical needs. So what do physical needs represent in this story? We've got to stop before we move on and talk about what physical needs mean in this story and also in our life as well. And here's the thing. It's a deeper reality. Because physical needs point to spiritual needs. Follow me on this and you'll get where Jesus is going to go. In the beginning, we know God creates, right? God creates because he is the creator. And every time he creates, he creates a need. 
Check it out. He creates the space, right? The heavens, so that he can do what with them? Put stars in them. Put planets in them. He creates water. He creates the ocean so that he can do what? Put a fish and put, populate them with, uh, with fish and animals. Land, same thing, right? He creates Adam, who names all the animals, by the way. And as he sees all the animals going by two by two, Adam realizes that he has a need. And God shows him his need and says, you need the woman. Men don't ever forget, God created woman so that we would be complete. You cannot do it on your own. So he created humans with needs to rest, to sleep, water, to drink, food. He created love and relationships that we needed. Intimacy, deep, soul-level connections. Have you ever wondered why people get hungry? Why is it that God created us that we got to get hungry? Why is it God created us so that after about 8 hours or 10 hours or 12 hours, we got to get some sleep? Why did he do that? So we see that Jesus is living out those same needs as a human in this story. So why did God create a pattern of needs? Here's why I think. I think we need to understand we need God physically. You know, when we bless, uh, when we bless our, t- our, our table, when we eat, whether it's in a restaurant or at home, we usually give thanks for the food, right? Why do we do that? I hope we do it because we realize that without God, we would not have that food. Even if I had to go down to the grocery store and get it, I still got to realize it's God who provided whatever the farmers needed to go make it. It's God who provided my ability to make wealth to go buy it. My food on my table is all about God providing me what I need. Do you get that this morning? So we need God physically. And our needs, our physical needs, remind us of that. We need God spiritually. All of our physical needs in the story here and in the Bible illustrate the need for God, right? The Food. The body's hungry. What, is the, what does the Bible tell us the soul is? soul is hungry. Water. The body gets thirsty. The soul gets thirsty. The body needs rest. The spirit needs rest. Our physical needs should point to a greater reality that we have spiritual needs that God needs to satisfy as well. Every day, all day, we declare our need for God. Points to a deeper reality. God is the one who is good. God is the one who meets my needs, both physically and spiritually. And I think he does that so that as we gave him praise this morning, he gets praise for meeting the needs in our life. That's why we bless our food. That's why we say grace. Thank you, God, for meeting my need and for blessing me. You get the praise. Everything is about God. Go back to the garden. Always like to go back to the garden as often as we can because we see in the garden and what happened with Adam and Eve the very essence and the very nature of what is going on in our lives today. You think about God meeting the needs of Adam and Eve. We started off in chapters 1 and 2 of, of Genesis, right? That could have gone on for a long time. God meeting needs, Adam and Eve um, um, praising God for meeting their needs in the garden. But then we see them believing the lie in the garden that came from the deceiver, the serpent, Satan. What do you think was going on in the minds of Adam and Eve when they believed the lie of the serpent? You ever thought about that? Like, they're in the Garden of Eden. They walk in the cool of the day with God. They've got everything. They don't even need clothes. What were they thinking when that serpent came up to them? What were they believing about God? Think about the accusations from the serpent. What did he say to them? Did God say that? Won't you be 
Therefore, God doesn't want you to. You see what he did? He deceived them. He got them to get their eyes off of God and onto themselves in meeting their own needs. And apparently, because of their believing the serpent, they were not satisfied with the way God provided all their needs. But we know the truth is God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere for our satisfaction. That's the truth. And they did not believe that. And they were not satisfied with God's way. And so they disobeyed him. They did their own thing. Sin and death entered the world to this day. And here's the crazy thing. Do you think Adam and Eve were more or less satisfied after they ate the fruit? Less. God has met all of their needs, Adam and Eve, for all of their days. And then they decide they are not satisfied. So they, they, don't, they want more than what God has given them. In other words, they're saying he is not good enough for them. So they believe the lie, they rebel against God's authority, and they die spiritually. Ultimately, they die physically. And what does that produce in their hearts? Less satisfaction. Insanity. And we all are in their mode today. They get more death. They get more pain. They get more trouble in their life. So understand the deeper reality that physical needs point to our spiritual needs in God, and they're there for us to praise him. That's the baseline of the story. Everybody good with that? Back to the story. Let's go to verse 9. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. Now, because we are so spiritual and we already know what John says in chapter 7 about what living water is, we read this and go, oh, okay, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But she didn't know that. You know, sometimes when we study our Bibles, we've got to go back to the context of the conversation and what the people were hearing and going through at the time. And so, Rush, throw me that bottle of water right there, would you? I'm getting thirsty. Thanks. Now, this is not living water. And I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing. It's good water. And it's wet. And it's convenient. And all I had to do was go to my fridge and pull it out and get it. And if you don't have bottled water in your fridge, you, you put on the, you know, lift a little tap there and water magically comes pouring out of this little faucet. Amazing. Whoever thought that up? Because, you know, 100 years ago, this was unheard of. 100 years ago, running water it was unheard of. You had to actually work for your water. You had to actually go down and find a stream or a river or a lake or somewhere and go get your water and haul it back. It was a daily chore to get water. And so here he's telling her, if you had known who I was, you would have asked me. I would have given you living water. What she's hearing is, you're giving me running water. You're giving me a a, a spring that never ends. You're giving me something I can just go take my cup and put it in here because it's running up. I can get living water, fresh, never-ending source of pure water. That's what she's hearing. That's what she's thinking when he says living water. She's misunderstanding And I think he did it on purpose because he's a master teacher and he wants her to understand what he's talking about. So she said to him in verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw with. Remember, because the disciples are gone, they probably got the bucket with them. So he's just sitting around the well with, with nothing to draw the water with. 
She says, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Where then do you get that water that just runs up? That water that is fresh, that never-ending source, that spring water. Where do you get that? Because that well is deep. And you've got to go put a bucket way down in there to get that water. So where are you getting this living water? Again, she doesn't understand. So then she says, in verse 12, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well, and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Here's what she's saying. This well is deep, and it's kept us alive for generations. Do you know something about this well that we don't know? Is this well going to dry up, or is there a better well somewhere? Jacob gave us this well, and it's been keeping us alive in this arid country for hundreds of years. What are you talking about? Are you greater than that? But see, Jesus is not talking about the physical. He's not talking about the physical need for water. He's going to be talking about the spiritual need that water represents. And of course, living water, as we know because we've read our Bibles... And we've gone to John chapter 7, and we've seen Jesus talk about, in detail, living water being analogous to the Holy Spirit that lives in you, if you're a believer. And in that analogy, later on, a few chapters on, Jesus absolutely makes the connection and says the Holy Spirit is the living water that produces fresh water inside of you forever and ever. Here's the deal. Just as a thirsty body dies without water that God provides... You know, I can say that I went down to Albertsons and bought this, but God provided this to me. I hope you're making that connection now. And if I don't have that water, I'm going to die. My body's going to die in a matter of hours, maybe days. Just as I need that water to survive, mankind has a thirsty spirit that will die without the living water that God provides from his spirit. Die spiritually. It happened in the garden. And so we have this analogy of what living water is. And look what Jesus says in, uh, in verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. Now again... Imagine where she's at. She's trying to make this transition here, and she hasn't quite made it yet. She's hearing living water. She's thinking this spring that just keeps... Now he's telling her about the spring that just keeps uh, springing up. It's like a fountain that just keeps pouring out. Right? You go to, uh, like, Yellowstone, and you see those geysers and the water just pouring out of it. I mean, what is she thinking, right? Because that's where her mind is at. It's like a well that is springing up. Like a person, the actual word in the Greek is a person jumping. That's what he's talking about. So get, get that. The water is jumping. Uh, actually, the same kind of words are used in the Old Testament when we hear about the Holy Spirit falling. Same kind of activity, falling on Saul, falling on Samson. So it's this analogy that, that there's life in this living water. There's life that is jumping up inside the person. So Jesus is revealing to her the connection. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So, deeper reality. Physical needs point to spiritual needs. 
And what Jesus is saying is that this water can never satisfy your soul. That's what he's trying to teach her. This water can never satisfy your soul. Now, the, the, the water can satisfy your thirst physically, but never satisfy your soul. You see, Jesus' water, the fresh water of the Holy Spirit, the living water that goes inside of you when you believe in him, is life itself. It is not water that brings life. It is life itself. It is like a well that is springing up. And what satisfies in this world does not last. What satisfies in this world does not last. Look, every longing in us is some kind of version of our longing for God. You need to understand that. We are made in his image. And even though it's distorted, even though it's, we've fallen from, from that what image was in the garden, we still, in our spirits, long for the God that we are made to know. Remember, every physical we need, we have points to a spiritual need. So ask yourselves the question, what truly satisfies? And here's our problem, ladies and gents. We tend to only think in the moment. We tend to only think about the right now and the here and now. And sometimes we see the pleasures of sin. They're real, by the way. Right? Sin wouldn't be so attractive if it wasn't fun. But we think the joy of God is not real or it's too far away. And that's a lie. The truth is God is good. The truth is God is good and we don't have to look elsewhere for what satisfies. Every joy that we experience is but a shadow of the source of all joy which comes from God. Let me give you a couple of examples. Marriage, for example, is a reflection of the joy of the union we have with God, right? That's the purpose of marriage, to reveal the relationship that we have with God. If you think your marriage is to make you happy, well, we'll talk later. So when we look at adultery, we look at things that are going outside of that marriage, it's a distorted reflection of that. If you idolize marriage or you commit adultery, then you are settling for less than living water. Give me another example. We love beach here. We love beach, beach, beach times and going down to the beach. Have you ever been down to the beach at sunset and seen the reflection in the water that is moving with the breeze on it? It's beautiful, isn't it? You see, God is the sun in all its beauty, in all its glory, in all its energy. The reflection is distorted and represents the sin and the idols that we chase after to satisfy us instead of looking to the source. Nothing but God satisfies, and only he satisfies in a true and lasting way. If you're looking for satisfaction or fulfillment or meaning or identity anywhere other than Jesus, you will always, mark my words, be left empty. Now, you may have a momentary light sense of pleasure or refreshment. Sure, the world gives you that, but you will always come up thirsty again. And the invitation of the Bible, here's the thing, is not to some kind of monotonous, tedious self-restraint, which sometimes we think it is. Oh, it's the Christian life. How boring is that? 
Our life is to call, uh, find in God that which truly satisfies. It's really believing in our hearts that we really do find lasting fulfillment, lasting satisfaction and joy and identity in knowing God. And nowhere else, that's the lie that we have believed. Because here's the thing, whatever sin offers, God offers more. I'm telling you, whatever sin offers, God offers more. You've got to start believing that. And God isn't just good. He's better. He's better than anything else you will ever experience. He is the true source of all joy. Do you really believe that this morning? Because if you don't, you are guilty of unbelief in that area in your life. Back to our story. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, she's starting to get it now. Give me this water. Isn't that how we we are? Just give it to me then. So I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Give me this water that I can find that I'm never going to have to come to this well again in the middle of the day, hauling all these water buckets. And I'll never be thirsty again. She's starting to make the transition from the physical to the spiritual. And here's how Jesus pushes her over the edge. Because we think what he's going to say in a minute is like unrelated. Well, no, it's absolutely related. Because she's just about ready to make the transition from the physical need to the spiritual. And so he says to her, boom. Go and call your husband to come here. Wow. Where'd that come from? The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Boom! Boy, he just blew up her world, didn't he? You see, Jesus helps her reveal how she is seeking spiritual satisfaction in the physical realm. And here's where we've got to make the connection in this story. The idols that we create and we attempt to satisfy our souls with is what Jesus is talking about. When he asks the woman to go fetch her husband, he's not just going off on some tangent. He's driving right to the heart of her problem, her physical needs. She's trying to make satisfy her spiritual needs. What is her idol that she's looking for? What do you think? What is the idol of this woman's heart? Relationships, love, meaning, purpose. Someone to tell her she means something. Someone to give her value. Someone to honor her and hold her up. And men, that is what we are supposed to do to our wives. But wives, let me tell you, we fail way too many times. Don't look to us primarily. Look to God first, please. So this woman's been looking for meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment in marriage and sex and intimacy, but they are like the water that leaves her thirsty again. Now, no doubt there was real pleasure. No doubt in those relationships there was something really going on there, at least for a little while. But it didn't last. It's not like Coca-Cola. It wasn't the real thing. It left her thirsty again. And by the way, I might add, I found this illustration. came out of the Wall Street Journal just last week. They announced that the vast majority of older Americans have married at least once by the time they reach age 50. But what's surprising is that 25% of them have married two times or more by their age 50. The majority of our country is under second or third or more marriage. What is this country idolizing? We watch way, way too much celebrity world, I guess. But we've forgotten that God is good, and therefore we don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. Let me ask you, put yourself in a woman's shoes. What are the patterns in your life? 
Do you ever say these words as you're thinking about your life and your satisfaction, how life could be better? Do you ever say these words? Well, if only. Hmm. What comes after the if only? If only I had met that person previously. Or if only this had not happened to me. Or if only I could get this person to do this for me. If only I could get this promotion from work. If only I could just do this. Do you really believe God is good? If everything you're looking at is if only this other thing had happened for me and to me? And here's the problem that we have. What is idolatry? Well, if I was to put a statue of Buddha up here and say you all bow down to that, you'd go, no, that's idolatry. And it is. But it doesn't take a statue and a carved graven image for us to commit idolatry. I hope you all know that. Idolatry is taking a good thing, even a good thing that God gives us, and making it the ultimate thing. Even above God. Even though, even though God says it won't satisfy me, we do it anyway. I must have it. Because I believe it is essential to my satisfaction. Now, what kind of things are good, but we make them ultimate things that try and satisfy us, and they become an idol? What do we bow at the altar of? Let me give you a few examples. You can check these off in your mind if it comes to you. What do we bow at the altar of in our lives today? Is it money? You know, there's nothing wrong with having money, and I hope you all know that. It's when you bow down to it as the meaning and satisfaction of your life. Stuff, consumerism, acquiring things. There's nothing wrong with having things. But when they define you and when they become what makes you satisfied, and I just need to go shopping one more time, I just need to buy one more car, I just need one more pair of shoes, I just need one more surfboard, whatever it is, if that's what's making you have meaning in life, it's an idol. Food. Or anything that comforts, which could be just about, you name it, anything that gives me such comfort to help me fight off anxiety and depression. I'm looking to it and not to God. Even sex created as good in marriage. It's a soul-level connection. It's the essence of two becoming one, not just physically, but spiritually. And we have distorted that in this country beyond measure. It's become an idol. And here's one for, you, for us older folks. Our grandkids. Yeah. Yeah, you ever idolize your grandkids? It's all about them. I just need to see them just for a little while until I get my fix. Which is, you know, good that we can always hand them back, right? That's the great thing about being grandparents. You can hand them back when you're done. So look, deeper reality we're talking about here. Physical needs point to spiritual needs. You've got to get that. Especially the next time you're hungry or thirsty. Start thinking about what is this telling me about who God is and what he's doing in my life. We do that on Communion Sundays a little bit, but you can do it every time you eat. And secondly, what satisfies in this world does not last. It's only temporary. So what does that drive us to? Final point today. Spiritual satisfaction is only found in Jesus. It's only found in worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Look at verse 19 in our passage. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She goes, there we go. You're one of those spiritual guys now, aren't you? You're going to sell me something, aren't you? She said, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people, you Jewish people, say that in Jerusalem it is the place where men ought to worship. 
Apparently, she's critical of religion, as so many people are today. She's suspicious of a spiritual salesman, as so many people are today. She's trying to draw Jesus in some type of worship controversy. She knows she's talking about her heart. She knows he's trying to get her to understand what she's done in this life points to what she's trying to get satisfied out of a spiritual life. And so she says, oh, our fathers and you people and what you believe and what I believe. And she starts that spiritual mumbo-jumbo, that religious mumbo-jumbo that so many people get caught up in and realize that we're not talking about that. And Jesus doesn't get caught up in that. Look what he says in verse 21. He said, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's not about where you worship. He says, you worship what you do not know. It's called idolatry. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He's talking about the attitude of the heart. She knew that. She was trying to deflect that. Here's the thing. Here's what Jesus is saying. Worship is about what you desire most. It's what you think has the most worth. Following Jesus is not about religion. Let's be perfectly clear. Christianity is not about a religion. It's not about a set of things that you've got to go do. It's about a relationship with a person who says, I love you and I've taken your penalty from an almighty and wrathful God. And if you believe that now, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You've been given a new soul. You've been given a new identity. And you'll live with me in eternity forever. Good news! Worship comes from the English worth-ship. It's your worth-ship, you would say. Acknowledging the worth of whatever it is you worship. And so when we say we worship God, we acknowledge that He is good above all else. We worship God in the Spirit. Versus material ways. In other words, versus a checklist of things that said, Oh, I just worship God this morning. I went to church, I sang some songs, I gave my tithe read some scripture, I'm done. I worshiped. No, 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 no. You worship God in spirit, acknowledging him as good as the provider, the person who is responsible for providing everything that you need in life. You worship him in truth. His word is truth. What's in this, in this Bible right here is giving us the direction for life. We worship God for who he is, I hope, instead of what he does, because so many times we get caught up in that trap. And we say, okay, God, man, you've been so good to me this week. You've blessed me with, I mean, I had a rock star parking lot every time I went shopping. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for that bonus check that I didn't see coming. And thank you that my husband bought me those dozen uh, roses for, for Friday night's date night. Man, thank you, Lord, you've been so good to me. If we're not careful, what happens when you know, the tax audit comes, and now you've got to owe a bunch. Or your husband forgets about your wedding anniversary. What happens then? Is God not good anymore? Let's see, worship God for who he is, not for what he does. Here's the deal. Every time we look to God to satisfy our longings, we worship him in spirit and in truth, period. And every time we look elsewhere for it satisfies us, we commit idolatry. It's that simple. And by the way, If you have an idol in your life, you will worship it. Example, people of Israel, their history is that their persistence was in idolatry. They were an idolatrous people, the people of God. 
Jeremiah wrote, in Jeremiah chapter 2, God's writing through Jeremiah says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. Listen to his words a thousand years before. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's amazing. Isn't it cool when, when the Bible just kind of lines up with his thoughts hundreds and hundreds of years? Because Jeremiah was saying, look, even our good works can be idolatrous acts. Even the things that we do and we say we're doing for God, if we don't delight in them for God's sake alone, they're idolatrous acts. If we don't find him beautiful and glorious in our eyes and serve him for, instead of serving him for what we get in return, that's idolatry. If you're serving God to get a good reputation or to get security or to get escape from hell, if that's why you serve God for what he does for you, that is idolatry. Because that is not who God is. John Piper, he's got a great saying. Uh, He says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I love that. The more we are satisfied with who God is, the more he glorifies himself. Isn't that great for us? The more, because we all want to glorify God. We know that's our purpose on earth. Make disciples who make disciples glorify God in everything that we do. And John Piper makes it so simple. He says, look, just delight yourself in the Lord, and he might actually give you the desires of your heart. Wait a minute, that's in Scripture, isn't it? Yes. Psalm 37, verse 4. And so you glorify God every time you get your desires by God. You know, it's easy for us to think that obedience is the price we pay for entry into heaven. We can get there if we're not careful. If we're honest with ourselves... I'm going to ask you to be honest with yourself this morning. You would probably like to be living for more pleasure. You would probably like to be living more like your unbelieving friends, doing those kinds of fun activities. Or maybe you're saying, well, I I can't do that. Because we Christians know that we have to live for God. Here's another lie. The life of obedience is not the bad life. It's not the sad life. It's the good life. Where's, where's Danny? What is it? Where's Danny? Are you paying attention? There you are. Pura Vida. Pura Vida. It's the pure life. It's a good life. Some of us know what that is. Life with God is the good life. It's not the boring life. It's not the I'm just going to have to stop doing everything I like doing life. Life with God and for God is the best life you can have. It's a lie from the enemy that we need to repent of, that the life with God is not our best life. And we need to change our minds and change how we think about God and who he is. Tim Chester says this. He says we need to change our ideas about what is good and what satisfies us. Listen to this. He says, change is about enjoying the freedom from sin and the delight in God that God gives us through Jesus. That's it. Stop thinking the Christian life is boring because what you're saying is God is boring. He is not boring. Now, just to close the rest of the story, and then we'll close this morning. You know, if you keep reading, the woman became convinced of who Jesus was. She had faith, and she ran off and told everybody in town about the Messiah that was there. Great picture of her repentance and her faith, and she begins evangelizing immediately. So our message this morning is, if God is good and we don't have to look elsewhere, then what do we do different? What do we need to repent of? What do we need to start doing differently? What's our application this morning? Here's what I think we can do. It's very simple. 
We need to start having an intimate life with God. Intimate life with God. We know the spirit of Jesus lives in us. And we know that he is therefore intimate with us. We have living water in us with the Holy Spirit. And we know that that same intimacy exists between God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean to you? Here's what that should mean to you. You are as intimate with God as two people who have fallen in love and are intimate with each other. And your level of intimacy with God should be that as of a married couple. And those of you who are married or have been in relationships, you know what I'm talking about. That's the level of intimacy we would, should have with God. You know, in, in heaven we are told that there is no marriage, there's no sex, there's none of that. Why? Some of you are going, wait a minute, I, I didn't hear that. It's still, it's going to be okay. Why is that? Why is there no marriage? Why is there none of that kind of activity going on in heaven? I'll tell you why. Because our intimacy with God in heaven is better than all that. Whoa, did I just blow your mind this morning? It's better than that what we have in marriage. Question for you this morning. If you could choose to live in Bible times, if you could reinsert yourself into that story and show up at the well and talk and walk with Jesus and his disciples, would you choose, if you could do this, would you choose that or would you choose to have his Holy Spirit live inside of you? Which would you choose this morning? Interesting question, isn't it? Which is more intimate, do you think? To walk and talk with Jesus as the disciples did, walking around Galilee and Samaria? Or having his spirit live inside of you? Which is more intimate? I know what you're saying. Theologically, you're saying, well, it's probably the Holy Spirit. That's the right answer. But are you believing that? You know, Hebrews says that because of what Jesus has done, we don't have to work for anything with him. And and, and that's a problem because we all have that legalistic tendency to want to prove ourselves. That's next week's message, by the way, to gain acceptance from God for what we do. Let God be your most intimate satisfaction. We get so easily bored with life. We need more TV, more internet, more apps. We are a consumer-driven, insane society. Remember that commercial that was out a while ago, and they'd be doing something and say, well, I just got this voicemail, or I just got this email. And that girl would say, well, that was so 23 seconds ago. Remember that? That was so 18 seconds ago. Got to have it right now, as instantly as I can get it, right? Instagram. I know I'm stepping on some toes now. (laughs) Facebook updates. Got to have it, got to have it, got to have it. We can't wait for the next download, the next upgrade, the next showtime. Our lives are revolving around the next series, the next lineup. We are consumers of life. And look, we are voracious. We have a voracious appetite to consume life. And when we don't get it, we get bored with life. Now, that is the culture we live in. Don't walk out that door and think it's not. So could it be, if that's the culture that's pressing in on us, could it be that we get so worried about eternity and life with God that it's so boring that we try and grab all the joy and all the gusto out of this life that we can't here on earth? Could that happen? Could we possibly be thinking that way? Did we look for joy in things outside of God, things of the world, maybe even sin? We want to, because we get bored and we so easily want to move on to what gives us our satisfaction. Or 
Or do we start to really believe and start to really look to God for satisfaction, not just for our physical needs, but for our spiritual needs as well? Two things to consider, and then we'll close. Consider this. I'm talking about boring life here on earth. God is never bored with life. God is never bored with life. And if we tap into him, we won't be bored either. He is life. And his, his joy in life is so gigantic that he never tires of sunrises and sunsets. Isn't that cool? God never gets tired of producing incredible sunrises and beautiful sunsets. He never gets tired of beauty and life. He never gets tired of daisies that grow at a certain time of the year, flowers that spring up again every year. He never gets tired of that. Consider our life in eternity. And, and, and when, we, when we experience this life in eternity with God, our joy and our life will be just as huge and each moment that we're there, we'll be bringing these fresh experiences of incredible joy and satisfaction. Imagine as we watch God create a new daisy. Imagine when he creates a new sunrise and a new sunset. Imagine if we watch God set up another set of double overhead highways. And you know what we're going to do with little kids? We're like, do it again, God. Do it again. Just like our kids do when we do something they enjoy. Do it again, God. Do it again. So as we leave this morning, are you an unbeliever in this part of your faith? Are you an unbeliever in really believing God is good no matter what and you can find satisfaction in Him, in Him alone? Because if you're not, what is the response to unbelief? What do we do? What are the two things that Christians got to do all the time? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Believe that God is so good, we don't have to look elsewhere for our satisfaction. I think so much of mainline Protestantism has become such a joyless religion. Perhaps because we're more impressed by the problems of the world than by the power of God. Perhaps we have become so secular. And indeed, maybe we think so, that so much of what happens depends on us. And boy, when you start thinking about everything's got to depend on you... That's a recipe for depression right there. Perhaps we have simply gotten bored with a boring God whom we have substituted for the God of the Bible and we're committing idolatry. You know, sometimes we sing God's praises as if it is a funeral dirge. Praise God to whom all blessings flow. Boy, I tell you what, a joyless Christianity is as clear a sign as everything that something is amiss. Now, the good news is I heard y'all singing this morning. And you weren't singing like that. Don't ever sing like a funeral dirge is happening on Sunday morning. Look, here's the thing. God is great. We don't need to be in control. God is glorious. We don't need to fear others, fear the rejection or crave their approval. And God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. Amen? All right, let's pray together. Father, I pray that you 
open our hearts to see where we have idols, where we have other things besides you that we're looking to for our satisfaction. When the chips are down and when we get tired, when we get bored, when we get upset, when we get frustrated, what do we turn to, Lord? Do we turn to the TV? Do we turn to the hobbies? Do we turn to the garage? Do we turn to the shopping malls? Where do we turn to, Lord, for our satisfaction? And that reveals the idols that we have in our hearts. Do we turn to our relationships? Do we turn to our kids, our spouses? Where do we go, Lord, when we need help in this life? I pray that this morning we will recommit, that we will repent, and we will believe that because you are good, because you are inherently good, you have what we need to be satisfied, not only in the physical of this life, but in the spiritual for all eternity. We thank you for this, Lord. Thank you for for Jesus, who makes this all possible. We pray in his mighty name. Amen.